Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Greetings, everyone. You are listening to Criminal Broads, the podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer. I am your friend. I am a very experienced big sister if you need that sort of energy in your life. But most of all, I'm your host here to tell you about women gone bad, born bad, whatever. We can debate that later. Um, I have got a story for you today. But before we dive into that, I wanted to read you an email from a reader because This email touches on what I like about true crime, what I find fascinating about true crime, which is the gray area. I think a lot of people think true crime is really black and white. Obviously, murder is bad. If you murder someone, you should go to jail, right? But what I find is that a lot of these stories have these weird areas where it's really complicated uh, how we should act or react. And one of those dichotomies, if you'll allow me to use a big word, is vengeance versus forgiveness. It's really hard to figure out where to land on that spectrum, you know, how much vengeance should we take, how much revenge, how much forgiveness, how much empathy. This is an email from an emergency physician in rural South Africa. She asked me not to use her name or the town she works in. There is a recurring phenomenon in my emergency department that is colloquially referred to as community justice. Young men are dropped off in triage, bare, beaten, battered, broken, soaked in blood, water, sand, and grass. These young men are perpetrators, rapists of young girls, thieves, or murderers that plague the community until the community had had enough. They are brought to justice by violence, chopped with pangas, similar to a machete, whipped with shamboks, whips with metal and glass woven into them, beaten with tree branches, metal chains, anything the angry community could lay their hands on. Women are part of this angry mob, especially in the case of rape. And then they come to the hospital, hypothermic, in shock, multiple long bone fractures, depressed skull fractures, lacerations and abrasions all over their young bodies, their faces swollen to the extent that they are unable to open their eyes. They often present with frank blood in their urine, something referred to as a traumatic rhabdomyolysis in medicine. I suspect that the men are brought to a specific body of water where justice is brought upon them because they're always covered in the same foliage and same type of sand. These young men often succumb to their injuries or are maimed for life. Sometimes they die as a result of kidney failure, secondary to traumatic rhabdomyolysis. As for the community, some members are occasionally accused of assault or murder, but to the best of my knowledge, no one has gone to trial. I emailed her back asking, saying, whoa, and asking, why, why do you think the young men keep committing these crimes if the entire community sort of knows what's going to happen to them? And she responded, I have no idea why they, com- why they keep committing their crimes. In the case of petty theft, poverty is most definitely a strong motivator. It's easier to steal than to find a job. 
Perhaps there is also a thrill to inspiring terror. Lack of policing certainly encourages them. The South African police service is overwhelmed. I cannot imagine how they could possibly give attention to each and every incident. South Africa is now being called the rape capital of the world. So the community steps in. When I'm at work, I'm a doctor on duty. There is no feeling, there is duty, a duty to treat. It's a polytrauma patient who needs to be assessed and treated according to ATLS principles. When I get home, I sometimes cry. My country is broken. So, I mean, if we think about that, um, this thing that's really happening in connection with the Poulan Devi episode or, you know, instances where you can't, you can't trust the police or the police just aren't there and so the community takes justice into their own hands. It's interesting to think about. And I thought that, you know, this listener has such a unique perspective of being a physician who actually sort of sees the result of this community justice. So... Thank you so much for that email, listener, who shall not be named, and I hope the rest of you like that. All right, on to the woman of today's episode. So last episode, we had our first crime-fighting broad, and we were all about celebrating the good gals. Now, this episode, we are veering right back into crime hardcore. We're getting really bad really fast. Um, you'll see what I mean as the story unfolds, but we're going to end up in Colombia. But first, let's start by traveling to Miami at the dawn of the crazy 80s. doctor in 1980s Miami. Now, you're not just any doctor. You're a cool doctor. During the week, you're sober and serious, and you get the job done just as the Hippocratic Oath says you should. But come Friday night? Well, (laughs) let's just say the papers aren't calling you and your friends weekend warriors for nothing. You've got all this money, and you want to spend it. So you go to nightclubs, designed for people just like you, people who want to get hyped up and dance all night and spend dozens, hundreds, thousands of dollars. At these clubs, you and your friends tend to disappear into the bathroom for a while, and you come back wiping your noses. At the best clubs, you use little mirrored tables that are right there out in the open, and the wait staff helps you snort up your party favors. At the really intense clubs, sometimes the rush and the thrill of dancing is interrupted by a hail of gunfire, and you sprint outside and shudder with your friends. You know the narcos have showed up to get their revenge again, but you don't care all that much at the end of the day. It's the weekend. Yes, Miami in the early 80s was the city of cocaine. Coke, snow, blow, dust, the big sea. It hadn't always been that way. The city hadn't always been so amped up and violent. Before cocaine, Miami was the chilled-out city of marijuana, or at least of marijuana trafficking. 
See, in the early 70s, Florida was an easy place to smuggle marijuana. You could literally drive a boat up to one of the miles and miles of unprotected shoreline and just drop off a load of the green stuff, no problem. Marijuana was the American drug of choice then, so nobody was thinking about cocaine. Not the Drug Enforcement Administration, not the pot smokers, and not the drug dealers. And then everything changed, slowly at first, and then faster and faster as befits cocaine. The Colombians, who were already shipping in pot to American distributors, started including a few kilos of coke each time. At first, the coke was hard to sell. It wasn't trendy. No one was interested in trying it. And then a little bit sold, and a little more, and suddenly these same distributors couldn't sell it fast enough. Overnight, cocaine had become trendy, a she-she upper-class drug beloved by America's lawyers, surgeons, influencers, and airline pilots. And then it wasn't just for rich people anymore. Everyone was doing coke. Deaths from cocaine overdoses climbed. Police reeled, journalists gasped, pastors led their congregations in prayer. Deliver us from all this cocaine! And with the cocaine came the murder. Eighty percent of the cocaine that was disappearing up American noses was coming in from Colombia, where a group more powerful and more violent than the mafia had sprung into being, the Medellin cartel, whose most famous member was Pablo Escobar. By 1978, one of the scariest members of that cartel was touching down in Miami, ready to move some kilos, collect some debts, and avoid some federal agents. This person was ruthless and violent and loaded down with guns, the way you had to be in the cocaine business, but they were also kind of disconcerting. They weren't just ruthless the way other cartel members were. This person seemed to like being ruthless a little too much. They were crazy, crazy mean, obsessed with vengeance and destruction and blood. And you wouldn't believe it if you'd heard the stories of what this person had done, but this cartel member was a woman. Griselda Blanco was born on February 15th, 1943, in an impoverished town outside of Cartagena, Colombia, along the coast of the Caribbean Sea. Her first name, originally a Germanic name, meant Grey Battle. When she was still a kid, she and her mother moved inland to the city of Medellin. It was violent there and poor. Murder was such a problem that the little kids of Medellin would make a game out of digging holes for the dead bodies. In fact, the whole country was dealing with dead bodies, as Colombia was being rocked by a ten-year civil war called La Violencia, the violence, in which hundreds of thousands of Colombians died at the hands of their countrymen. In the meantime, Griselda was enacting a little violencia of her own. As the story goes, when Griselda was eleven, she kidnapped a ten-year-old boy, the son of a wealthy family nearby, and tried to hold him for ransom. When that didn't work, or the family didn't respond in time, she shot the boy right between the eyes. If this story is true, it's bone-chilling. If it's not true, it says a lot about what people assumed Griselda Blanco was capable of. 
In her preteens, Griselda made ends meet by turning to pickpocketing and then, allegedly, sex work. Some say that she was abused by her mother. Others say she was abused by her mother's boyfriends. However, these stories of abuse and of sex work are denied by a man who knew one of her sons. She was only 13 when she met the guy who'd be her first husband, Carlos Trujillo, maker of false immigration documents and specialist in sneaking immigrants into the United States. Griselda was attracted to his hustle and his criminal lifestyle, and the two of them had three handsome, reckless boys together, Dixon, Uber, and Osvaldo. Griselda loved her sons fiercely and raised them to be just like her, flashy, fearless, and obsessed with the mafia. She didn't love her husband, Carlos, quite as fiercely, though. The two of them divorced in the late 1960s, when Griselda was in her 20s, and a few years later, Carlos died after the two of them had some disagreement about business. It was never proven that Griselda killed him, but many people seemed pretty sure that she'd poisoned him. Before long, she married again, this time to a man in the cocaine business named Alberto Bravo. The two of them decided to try their luck in America, in New York City specifically, where they figured they could rub elbows with the five families of the mafia and use their direct connection to Colombian cocaine to sell mountains of the white stuff. And that's exactly what they did. Before long, Griselda and Alberto were bringing in millions of dollars a month, and Griselda especially was making a name for herself due to her creativity. In the male-dominated drug industry, Griselda leaned into the female world, enlisting a lingerie shop back home in Medellin to produce a series of extra-fancy undergarments with secret compartments sewn in so that her girls could fly into the U.S. on regular airplanes looking voluptuous but innocent, with thousands of dollars worth of cocaine tucked into their underwear, bras, and girdles. That wasn't her only innovation, either. According to one DEA agent, Griselda was the first to use multiple supply sources, meaning that she always had cocaine coming in, even if one source ran into trouble. She also helped the cartel grow rapidly by pooling shipments of cocaine so that the cartel could send in more at a time. Basically, to borrow the words of early Facebook, she wasn't afraid to move fast and break things. The things she broke, however, were skulls. But we'll get there. Now... Griselda's impressive innovation was also a good way to get noticed by the New York Police Department and the Drug Enforcement Administration, and soon enough the two organizations had teamed up on something they were calling Operation Banshee, the first major Colombian cocaine case in U.S. history. It was a massive undertaking, and it worked, initially. In 1975, they seized $35 million worth of cocaine and charged 159 cocaine dealers, including Griselda and Alberto. But only 113 of the dealers were ever actually arrested. Griselda and Alberto had slipped away to Colombia as soon as they realized what was going on, where U.S. authorities couldn't reach them. But at some point during the stressors of the past few months, Griselda had noticed that millions of dollars of profits were mysteriously missing from the business. And so in Colombia, she confronted Alberto about it one night in a nightclub parking lot. Harsh words were exchanged, tempers rose, and when Griselda reached down into her boot to pull out the small pistol that she'd stashed there earlier, her husband responded by pulling out an Uzi. That is, an open-bolt, blowback-operated submachine gun. Griselda had a pistol, Alberto had an Uzi, 
And yet somehow, in the ensuing hail of bullets, only one of them survived. And it wasn't the person with the machine gun. Then Griselda married again. Her third husband was Dario Sepulveda, and in 1978 they had a son together. Griselda, who'd been long obsessed with the Godfather movies, named him Michael Corleone, after Al Pacino's character. In fact, mobster movies were the soundtrack to Griselda's life. She and her sons, now three from her first marriage and little Michael, used to sit around and watch The Godfather, Scarface, and an older TV series called The Untouchables, which was about prohibition and the mob in 1930s Chicago. They would watch them over and over and over. Informants would later say that the whole family had memorized the dialogue. As Griselda's sons grew up, they'd even try to dress like the mobsters they saw on film. Griselda's third husband was doomed to meet the same fate as her first two. After five years of marriage, Griselda learned that he was cheating on her with a topless dancer and that he wanted full custody of Michael. Neither one of these things was acceptable to her, and so she sent her hitmen after him, where, dressed as cops, they shot him down in front of his son. From three failed marriages, Griselda got her four beloved boys and a sexy new nickname, La Viuda Negra, or The Black Widow. After spending a couple of years back in Colombia, avoiding the American feds, Griselda felt the urge to return to the U.S. and start doing business on an even bigger scale. Since New York was too hot for her now, she moved to Miami. After all, it was the place to be if you worked in Griselda's line of business. Something shifted in the city when Griselda moved there. It was the violence. It was slow at first, an uneasy undercurrent to daily life, and then it was everywhere, flooding the banks, the same way that cocaine had taken over the scene. In 1979, about a year after Griselda got there, two men were killed in a mall liquor store in broad daylight, and something about this particular homicide really changed the feel of the city. There had been double homicides before, there had been drug-related assassinations before, but not like this. Not in the sunshine, in front of innocent bystanders, in front of children. This wasn't so much of a random hit as it was a sign of war. The assassins riddled their targets with bullets from submachine guns, and their getaway car was built for killing. It was a van that had been tricked out to be the perfect murder machine, with reinforced walls and gun ports and bulletproof vests and extra ammunition and, in an incredibly cynical gesture at disguise, the words, Happy Time Party Supply, stamped on the side. Griselda denied it, but she'd ordered the hit. She told one of her hitmen that the primary victim, a drug baron who was one of her cocaine sources and also owned a number of islands, was getting too greedy. But that wasn't true either. In fact, the greedy one was Griselda. She owed him a lot of money and she wasn't very fond of repaying her debts, so she sent the Happy Time Party Supply van to gun him down in front of the whole city. Now, this made Griselda a bit of a hypocrite, because Griselda was very insistent that people repay their debts to her. 
By this point, her empire in Miami was unmistakable, and she was a key member of the Medellin cartel, the Queen Pin, some called her. She had thousands of employees and a distribution network stretching across the United States. She brought in $80 million a month, and she ruled with terrifying ferocity and sometimes with a madwoman's lack of reason, and if you didn't pay her back, you died. She rarely performed the murders herself, of course. She had an entire squad of hitmen to do the dirty work for her. Hitmen who loved to murder, who prided themselves on being great at murder. A couple of these hitmen once went to the theater to watch Scarface, and they laughed and laughed at the scene of a botched assassination. They wouldn't have botched it, they chuckled. These were men who knew how to chop off limbs, fit bodies into tiny boxes, drain blood from corpses, and hit their targets quickly and effectively in motorcycle drive-by shootings, a form of killing that Griselda allegedly invented. One of these men was the handsome, charismatic Jorge Ayala, who went by Rivi. If Griselda wanted someone dead, Rivi took care of it, no matter who got caught in the crossfires. If she felt like a club owner hadn't treated her right, Rivi would spray the people waiting outside the club with machine gun fire. If a dealer didn't pay Griselda what he owed her, Rivi wouldn't wait for excuses. He'd just kill. For Griselda, you didn't pay, you die, said Rivi. It's not about the money, it's just to prove a point. Sometimes Griselda had to go after one of her own, which didn't faze her. When one of her other hitmen, Chucho Castro, got in a screaming match with her son Osvaldo, Griselda decided that Chucho had to die, and so she sent Rivi after him. This was a tricky hit, since Chucho knew all the hitman's tricks. Rivi ended up crouching in the back of a moving van, and when the van pulled up next to Chucho's car, Rivi opened fire through the side of the van, but Chucho managed to get away by sliding down in his seat and slamming on the gas. What Rivi hadn't known, though, was that Chucho's two-year-old son, Johnny, had been sitting in the back seat, so tiny that he wasn't visible through the car windows. Johnny had been killed by a bullet to the head. A grieving Chucho knew he couldn't go to the police, and so he put his son's body on ice, mourned over him for days, and then left him outside of a church with three roses tucked under his tiny clasped hands. The murder of little Johnny Castro bothered a lot of people. It bothered Rivi, who wouldn't have fired if he'd known there was a kid in the car. It bothered the cartel back in Medellin because it was cruel and unnecessary. The only person it didn't bother was Griselda. At first, she was real mad because we missed the father, Rivi told police later. But when she heard we had gotten the son by accident... She said she was glad that they were even. Chucho had insulted her son, and now his son was dead. An eye for an eye, thought Griselda. And so the violence in Miami grew and grew, with Griselda behind a lot of it. The Colombian killers who screeched up to the curb, riddled people with bullets, and tore away on motorcycles were called cocaine cowboys— Sometimes the cops who quote-unquote chased them were cocaine cops. Police corruption was rampant, and it wasn't hard to understand why. The cocaine trade was so incredibly lucrative that when a cop stopped a car and discovered that the trunk was full of cocaine, the driver could easily have $10,000 in cash on hand. He could have 20000 
Maybe he'd uh, offer you a cut of it. Maybe he'd double the money if you said no. At a certain point, it'd be hard for anyone to resist just taking the cash. The murder rate got so bad that after a certain point, a double homicide or even a triple homicide didn't seem like that big of a deal. Cops had to see four, five, six bodies before it even registered on their radar as an especially bad night. Meanwhile, the media was raking Miami over the coals, comparing the city to Prohibition-era Chicago or to the lawless shootouts of the Wild West. Nervous tourists wondered if they dared visit Miami Beach, as every morning a new body appeared on the news, slumped over a steering wheel, or sprawled in a parking lot, or chopped into tiny pieces and shoved in a little box and flung out of a car window into the swampy grass along the side of a highway. Though authorities never saw her, they knew that many of these bodies were there because of Griselda. She had the worst temper I ever saw, said one of her suppliers. She ordered death the way other people order a pizza. Rivi, who knew her better than most, realized that she loved making enemies. She liked to be at war, he said. Every day she was talking it. We gotta get so-and-so. We gotta get so-and-so. We gotta get rid of him. When she wasn't at war, Griselda was partying hard. She was rumored to throw massive orgies in her apartment, which had mirrored walls and ceilings. She was rumored to force both men and women to give her sexual favors at gunpoint. She was rumored to take nubile young girls, get them high on cocaine, and make them pose naked for her. She was rumored to own diamonds that once belonged to the first lady of Argentina, Eva Perón. Her love of opulence trickled down to her sons who were doing business for her in San Francisco, Miami, and L.A. Young Osvaldo had a house in Beverly Hills that he rented for $16,000 a month with a florist who would come over every morning to cover the surface of his pool in fresh, floating flowers. If you wanted to hang out with Griselda, you had to get comfortable with the way she combined luxury and danger. You had to get comfortable with the fact that she owned a German shepherd named Hitler. You had to get comfortable with the fact that sometimes she threw parties where the entire point of the party was to murder certain guests, and after their bodies were taken away, she would look at the rest of the partygoers and say, nothing has happened here, so let us continue with the party. But you could never get too comfortable. One drug trafficker, John Roberts, was told by a friend that he should never sleep with Griselda, no matter what, because she might slit his throat afterwards. You just never knew what Griselda was going to do. Part of the reason that you never knew what Griselda was going to do was because she was addicted to freebasing cocaine. Oh yes, the drug dealer's rule, never get high on your own supply, didn't apply to Griselda, who was smoking her own grade A blow like there was no tomorrow. It seems likely that some of Griselda's chief character traits, like the fact that she was super paranoid and kind of a hypochondriac, were created or at least exacerbated by her drug abuse. One thing's for certain. 
The idea of a vengeful, bloodthirsty queenpin is scary enough, but the idea of said queenpin making decisions about who will live and who will die after melting down a pile of cocaine and then inhaling its vapor through a pipe is truly terrifying. If you're thinking that Griselda Blanco ruled and partied like a man, you're not wrong. The world of the drug wars, of sicarios, cartel hitmen, and submachine guns and motorcycles and mirrored tables, was built and run by powerful men. Most of the women in this world were either decorative, like the super sexy call girls who slept with drug lords in exchange for money and career opportunities, or else they were disposable, working as drug mules and ending up in jail or dead. Men led the drug wars because... Well, let's see what an academic has to say about it. As Professor Aldona Bialowas Pubutsky writes in Hispanic Journal, typically the world of narcoculture exalts a highly masculinized violence by underscoring the vertiginous careers of the most hardened male criminals who reached the pinnacle of the subculture by building an empire founded on fear. That was the key. Fear. Drug lords had to be able to instill fear in people, and fear required ruthlessness. And women couldn't be ruthless, right? After all, women are emotional, maternal, sensitive to the mewling of a kitten, the crying of a child, or the screams of a low-level drug dealer who is writhing on the floor, begging you not to kill him. Note, Griselda was emotional, once. She earned herself the nickname The Compassionate One when... She shot a man instead of beheading him, as she'd planned. The cartels may have exalted this highly masculinized violence, but the world of cocaine was slowly changing. In 2008, the anthropologist Howard Campbell noted what he called the growing feminization of drug smuggling. He saw that more and more women were joining the drug trade at all levels, as drug mules, mid-level dealers, and even occasionally as the bosses. One marijuana smuggler told Campbell that very few women were in the drug trade when the drug trade was all about pot, but everything changed when cocaine entered the business. Women's lib worked, joked the smuggler. They too get to go to prison now. At the highest levels, these women included people like Lola La Chata, Mexico's first major female drug trafficker. Mary Valencia, a leader of the Cali cartel, which split from the Medellin cartel in the late 80s, and Endina Arellano Felix, the current leader of the Tijuana cartel. Some of these high-level women were known for their glamour and beauty, others for their organizational prowess, others for the gun they always kept in a handbag. But even among these capable, terrifying, cold-hearted women, Griselda stood out for her viciousness and, more disturbingly, for her lack of control. She was good at what she did. She was great at what she did. But she was getting more and more erratic with her obsession with murder and her bad coke habit. And her cartel knew it. Purple forces match the corset. Look like we've flown in on purple horses. Peep the portrait and please absorb it. Might be a wee bit out your orbit. You forfeit. I'm something like a sure fit. Get gully, I'ma hit them with a swordfish. Yeah, give them more lip tour shit galore, bitch. I mean, of course, you know who the source is. Make them say, oh, yeah, negrita. I hit the spot, he say, oh, you bonita. You can go deeper. You hit this reefer. You gon' meet creatures that make you believe us. By 1984, Griselda realized that things were getting a little too hot for comfort in Miami. 
The federal government has started to crack down hard on cocaine, and they were looking for her. One of the people looking the hardest was a DEA agent named Bob Palombo, who'd been patiently tracking Griselda for over a decade. Bob was so stressed about this hunt that he was going gray early and his marriage was on the rocks because he was spending so much time looking for the queen pin instead of hanging out with his two young children. The whole thing was so frustrating for him that one day he blurted out to his co-workers, If I ever catch her, I'm going to give her a kiss of death because she is driving me crazy. The general feeling among the feds was that Griselda needed to be caught yesterday, and not just because the hunt for her had cost U.S. authorities $7 million. As one U.S. attorney said, Several agents told me it would be worth their whole careers to put her away. There was a professional feeling that this was someone evil who had to go to jail for some of the worst crimes against society. But it wasn't just the feds who wanted Griselda put away. The brother of her third husband was looking for her too, though unlike Bob, he wasn't planning to arrest her, he wanted to put a bullet through her head. And so did a bunch of people from her own cartel. Griselda had always been trigger-happy, but she'd really overstepped her boundaries when she killed a woman named Marta Ochoa Salderiega in order to wipe out her $1.8 million debt to Marta. This wasn't the first time Griselda had killed someone instead of paying them back, of course, but Marta was really the wrong creditor to kill, as she was the cousin of the three Ochoa brothers who had founded the Medellin cartel. With the feds, the cartel, and one really angry brother-in-law closing down on her, Griselda took her son Michael and hurried out of Miami. They hunkered down in a plain-looking house in Irvine, California. No time for swimming pools covered in fresh flowers when you're trying to remain incognito. And it was there, on February 17, 1985, two days after Griselda's 42nd birthday, that the feds got to her first. Bob Palombo bounded upstairs and found Griselda sitting in bed, reading the Bible, with a gun laying casually on her nightstand. "'Griselda, we finally meet,' he said." As she insisted that her name was Betty and she was from Venezuela, Bob just leaned in, put the handcuffs around her wrists, and kissed her on the cheek. Griselda had a bewildered look on her face, he remembered later. It was like she never believed it would ever happen to her. months later, Griselda was tried, convicted, and imprisoned on one count of conspiracy to manufacture, import into the United States, and distribute cocaine. This charge was an old one, from way back in 1975, when Griselda and Alberto had been indicted in New York City under Operation Banshee, and this charge was just the tip of what the authorities wanted to charge her with. Everybody knew that Griselda had murder in her past— 200 murders, they suspected. And so, in Miami, they began to build a capital murder case against her. In the meantime, Griselda continued to run her cocaine empire. She did it with the help of her brand new boyfriend, Charles Cosby, a young black man from Oakland who had watched Griselda's arrest on TV and thought, I've got to meet this woman. 
He wrote her an admiring letter and was shocked when she arranged for him to visit her. He was even more shocked when he walked into the prison's visiting room and Griselda greeted him with a long, passionate kiss on the mouth. Before Charles could really wrap his mind around what was happening, he was running Griselda's cocaine business on the outside, meeting with her distributors and returning to prison to have sex with her, a privilege that cost Griselda $1,500 in bribes every time. But even though her business might have been booming, Griselda's power wasn't limitless. In 1992, her older sons, who had been arrested right around the time that she was, were paroled and deported back to Colombia, where Uber and Osvaldo were gunned down. She couldn't save her beloved boys, but she could orchestrate revenge, and so, from prison, she organized the torture and execution of the men who'd killed them. But the walls did seem to be closing in on Griselda. By 1994, the murder case against her was really sizzling. Her old, beloved hitman, Rivi, had been arrested a few years earlier and had pled guilty to three murders by 1993. Three murders, mind you, that Griselda told him to do. The Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office got the coup of a lifetime when they convinced Rivi that testifying against his old boss would be a whole lot nicer than getting the death sentence. And just like that, Rivi flipped. One of those murder charges was for little Johnny Castro, the two-year-old boy. The other two charges were for the deaths of a drug-dealing couple, Alfredo and Grisel Lorenzo, who hadn't paid for their latest order of cocaine. Rivi and another hitman slaughtered them in their own home, with their three children right there in another room. Griselda had ordered the other hitman to kill the children, too, but Rivi managed to talk him out of it. When Griselda found out that she was being extradited to Miami to answer for those three murder charges, she threw up. And then she decided to kidnap John F. Kennedy Jr. So let me get it, let me get it. Demon Laurita, not another medic. Little Mama Zita with Maria getting digits. Put you on a pivot, so these hitters won't get it. I'm out. Okay. Her lover, Charles Cosby, says that Griselda decided to kidnap JFK Jr. But others who knew her dispute that, and FBI agents were unable to corroborate the threat. But here's how the story goes, anyway. After all, if it happened, it'd be crazy, paranoid, a deranged thing to do. So very on brand for Griselda. The way Cosby tells it, Griselda was absolutely panicking after Rivi turned on her. When Cosby tried to calm her down, she pulled a scrap of paper out of her bra and told him to give it to her son, Dixon. The paper said, JFK, 5MNY. And Griselda eventually admitted that she was planning to pay kidnappers $5 million to kidnap JFK Jr. in New York City. Then she would buy her freedom by negotiating his release. Cosby recognized this plan for what it was. Insane. But he delivered the message, and four Colombian kidnappers got so close to the unsuspecting JFK Jr. that one of them actually pet his dog on the head. But a police car drove by right at that moment, and the kidnappers were apparently too spooked to finish the job. That was enough to scare Cosby off, too. And just like Rivi, he eventually turned away from Griselda and agreed to testify against her. Griselda should have been doomed. After all, Cosby and Rivi knew more about her nefarious schemes than maybe anyone else in the world. Rivi was the linchpin of the entire case against her. There was no physical evidence to link her to any of the murders, and so the whole case hinged on Rivi's credibility. But, in a twist of unbelievably good luck for Griselda, 
The entire case fell apart when Rivi lost all of his credibility in a hilariously embarrassing phone sex scandal. Yes, charismatic, handsome Rivi was caught having phone sex with multiple secretaries from the state attorney's office. It was ridiculous, and it had nothing to do with murder, but it ruined the case against Griselda. Instead of being fully prosecuted for three of the potentially hundreds of deaths she caused, Griselda pled no contest to three second-degree murder charges and was given three sentences of 20 years each to be served concurrently. Due to various legal loopholes, she only served about a third of that sentence, and she was deported back to Colombia in June of 2004 at the age of 61. The same day she was released, Rivi was stabbed eight times in jail. He lived, but refused to talk about it. Authorities were pretty sure, though, that it was a message from Griselda. It was frustrating for people like Bob Palombo to see Griselda walk free, but everyone assumed that being deported to Colombia was more or less an unofficial death sentence for the Queen Pin. Griselda had enough enemies in Colombia to fill a Miami courtroom, and they didn't care about things like due process or witness credibility. Bob was pretty sure he'd hear news of Griselda's murder within days of her return to Colombian soil. But she surprised everyone again by surviving. She led a quiet life, though people suspected she had millions and millions of dollars squirreled away, and as the years went by, no one seemed to be coming after her. After eight years of laying low, Griselda Blanco woke one morning and decided to go to a butcher shop in Medellin. Who knows what was going through her mind that morning. Maybe she was thinking about dinner, what sorts of dishes she'd cook with the succulent local meats. Maybe she was thinking about her future. She was 69 now, with half of her sons and all of her husbands dead. Maybe she was thinking about the innovations she'd pioneered over the course of her life, the special bras with pockets for cocaine, the motorcycle assassins who'd drive by, spraying you with bullets before you had a chance to see their faces. Or maybe she was just thinking about how much fun she'd had ordering all those deaths smoking all that cocaine, seeing all that panic in the eyes of all those people right before she shot them down. She went into the butcher shop, ordered her meat, and outside, two men hopped off their motorcycles, walked into the shop, lifted their guns, fired, and leapt back onto the motorcycles, driving away. And just like that, Destroyed by the destructive thing she had invented, Griselda Blanco fell to the ground, bleeding out. When journalists asked members of the Miami Police Department for comment on the woman who'd made their lives miserable for so long, a former homicide detective said, It's surprising to all of us that she had not been killed sooner, because she made a lot of enemies. Back in 2006, 
A documentary called Cocaine Cowboys was released two years after Griselda got out of prison, and the world at large learned about the godmother. And they kind of liked what they saw. If you just read the Sparknotes version of Griselda's life, she looked like a bit of a badass, a woman in a man's world, moving lots of money, sexually liberated, and not afraid to party. She lived like a character in a movie, what with her diamonds and her big cars and her handsome sons and her penchant for pretty young girls. And that wasn't an accident. After all, she did model her life after the glitzy, thrilling, high-rolling life of organized crime that she saw on screen. But under all of that glitz, there was violence. Not movie screen violence, the sort that comes with a soundtrack and credits at the end. Real violence, and lots of it. You could see the effects of all that violence in the cold eyes of her hitmen and in the bodies of her beloved sons, riddled with bullets on the streets of Medellin. You could see its effects in her own paranoia and drug abuse, in the way she baited her enemies, and in the small, cold body of Johnny Castro lying stiffly outside of a church with blue lips and roses in his hands because his criminal dad didn't know how else to tell the world that his boy was dead. Any glamour in Griselda's world came at a terrible price. That being said, One beautiful thing did come out of Griselda's career, and it wasn't the diamonds or the pool covered in flowers. It was the Miami skyline. At the end of Cocaine Cowboys, the old drug traffickers explained that the huge infusion of cash into Miami during the cocaine wars is what built the skyscrapers and apartment complexes that define downtown Miami today. These days, the city glows in shades of white and sunset pink, tourists visit without fear. Griselda's son, Michael Corleone, survived his mother, and today he's turned his mother's name into a brand. He appears on a VH1 show called Cartel Crew, and he runs a clothing website at pureblanco.com, where you can buy a hoodie or an iPhone case with Griselda's face on it. As you shop, you'll be interrupted by a pop-up that says, Billionaire motivation, special offers, exclusive products, we reward loyalty. Join the cartel and get 10% off now. It's strange. Michael and his mother consumed the idea of the mafia as though it were a brand they could adopt. And now the cartel has also become a product, a pop-up, a thing totally divorced from how it really was. But of course Michael is selling hoodies with his mother's face on them. Michael loved his mother. Michael loves his mother. And she loved him. At the end of the day, Michael was the only person Griselda had left. And she never got to be with him. She refused to let him visit her in Colombia, fearing that her old enemies would gun him down as soon as he set foot on Colombian soil. In a clip of Griselda recorded in 2009, she says in Spanish, It makes me very sad. I wish I could see him so I could hug him and kiss him. The most important part of my life is my son's. For all the glitz and the coke and the machine guns, Griselda's life was ultimately marked by loneliness. Perhaps that's why she loved watching movies where the characters would never leave her and could always be brought back to life with a push of the rewind button. 
According to one of her suppliers, Griselda would sometimes make her maids spend the entire night with her, and the rule was that these girls had to wrap their arms around her and couldn't let her go. I don't think it was sexual, said the supplier. She just needed someone with her or she couldn't sleep. The rumor was that she had killed over 200 people. I always thought it must have been the ghosts of those people who came back to haunt her in her dreams. She had no compadres left. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed Griselda's story and the crash course I gave you in South Floridian history and cartels. <laughs> Believe you me, it is the whole thing is far more complicated than I could fit into an episode, um, but you got a little taste of it. Um, an extra thank you to my very first round of patrons. Woo! As you may know, I started a Patreon a couple weeks ago. And um, if you'd like to become a patron of the podcast and receive rewards like postcards, prints, the occasional bonus episode, and a criminal nickname of your very own, you can go to patreon.com slash criminal broads or just look for the link in the show notes of this episode to sign up at the $1, $5, or $10 a month level. And as promised, I would like to give some Patreon shout outs. So this episode's patrons are Charlie P, Christine Somer Romo, Deborah Dunlap, Karen Salgado Mojica, Lauren Lichtenfels, Lisa Burback, Lori R. Kirchen, Masha K, Natalie Jean Bauer, Rachel Bells, and Sam Telfer, who is definitely not related to me. No, 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 no. Not related to me at all. It's a total coincidence that we have the same last name that is not my younger brother. So you all are super special to me. <laughs> Thank you so much, um, you, you criminal broads, you. I just really appreciate it. Thanks for making this show possible. Two weeks from now, I will see you all back here and we are going culty again. We've been culty before, but really, can you ever have can you have too many cult stories in your life? The answer is yes, but I don't think I've given you too many cult stories yet, right? So next week we're going to dive into a cult. The week after that, Lord knows where you'll find us. I actually know where you'll find us, but I won't tell yet. Um, what else? Follow along on Instagram, Criminal Broads on Instagram, to see photos of Griselda and all the women that I talk about. Email me at criminalbroads at gmail.com if you want to share stories, chat, whatever. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being the best listeners ever. I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Until then, stay warm, stay safe. Bye. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.